All right, we are uh, going to attempt to, and it may take us uh, more than more than tonight. And if that's the case, that's all right. We've done it before, uh, but we're going to dive into uh, the providence of God, the providence of God. And by providence, what we mean is uh, the term providence is a term we we pull from Latin. It means to foresee, and it carries the idea of knowing the future but also has the idea of acting prudently, making preparation for the future. Theologically, uh, providence can be defined as uh, having two aspects. One is that of God's work of preserving all of his creation, maintaining and sustaining it. The other is God's activity in guiding or directing the course of events to fulfill his purposes or his, his governance. If one aspect is his provision and upholding, the other is his governance uh, where most often we would talk about God's sovereignty, that God has complete and total authority and, and power to act in accordance with who he is. And uh, if you are a, a student of American history, you've no doubt heard much of our many forefathers in, in uh, both those of the Christian and those of the deistic variety would both reference the idea of providence as a uh, kind of title for either God or, in the case of the deist, their deity. Um, what it gets into is the fact, uh, where does ultimately God's providence intersect with, with uh, man's actions? And that's why it can be a big and massive, massive uh, nut to try to crack. And so on this, I want to, let me give you this proviso as we start. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Here's what Moses is saying. There there are things of God that are secret, that you and I don't understand, that are beyond our pay grade, beyond our scope, beyond the fact that we are uh, at our core, why we are precious and we are valuable in the sight and, and heart of God, you and I are also mere mortals in contrast to the everlasting triune God. And there are things and aspects of God, just like the Trinity, that we can understand some things clearly, but we're not going to be able to understand all things fully. And, and when it comes to God's providence, you and I are bound by the fact that we are finite beings with an extremely uh, limited uh, capacity for knowledge, and that's not a knock on the human mind, it's just the reality that the human mind cannot contain even all knowledge we think exists from a human exp- perspective. Not only that, but we are bound by geography, we are bound by time. You and I cannot fathom what it is like to be a being who exists outside of time. I mean, just understand that. that. That will mess with your mind right there. Uh, we, we can't fathom. And so, our, here's, so here's what he's saying. There's some things that are secret, but there are other things that God has revealed clearly. And those things belong to us. And, and notice what it says, for what reason? That we may observe the words, that we may follow, that we may know, that we may live it out. And so our aim here tonight as we walk through the providence of God, it's to understand that which is revealed And by trusting what God reveals, how he reveals it, to walk with him confidently and rightly. It's also on the flip side to avoid uh, entertaining and and believing and and allowing allowing thoughts that are lesser than the character of God to implant in the garden of our mind. 
and thus give us a lesser view of who God is. Now I want you to remember, there's some realities to remember as we come to God's providence. Remember, as, as we went through the attributes, God is independent, meaning that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify and bring him joy. We looked at this three weeks ago. Uh, Acts says that God God made the world and all things in it, um, but he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. But instead he gives all, all things to all. God does not need us. He is not dependent upon us. He is independent who he is in the core of his being. Not only that, but he is free. He has freedom. He does whatever he pleases. And it implies that there's not, it should all creation up and completely rebel and decide to oppose God. Angel, human, animal, force of nature still doesn't change the fact that God is going to accomplish what he wills to accomplish. Because God is independent and he is free. God does not change. He is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purpose and promises. He doesn't change because he's already perfect. And if he did change, he would cease to be God. It says that uh, every good and perfect gift comes down from above. James chapter one, coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or or, uh, shifting shadow. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So that God that we've looked at the last two weeks, God who is righteous, who is just, who is holy, who is loving, who is gracious, who is merciful. He is the God who is providentially over all things. He is the God who is sovereign and he doesn't change, which should imply great confidence. We know that God is infinite. He's infinite regarding space and time. We, we call this his omnipresence. He, he exists 100% fullness of his being in every possible spot of existence. And he exists independent of time, though he acts inside of time. He knows all things, omniscient. He knows all things possible and all things actual. And in his wisdom, he only chooses that which is the very best. And praise the Lord, he's omnipotent. He has all power because he desires to do what's very best. He knows what's very best, and he has the power to do what's very best. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Uh, it's not on your, I don't think it's on your sheet because it was after, after we did, up, did those sheets. So write it down or look it up. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11 says this, God speaking, remember this and be assured. I want you to remember that statement. Everything we look at tonight should flow to assure us, to bring hope, confidence, security, doesn't mean that we're going to answer every question. I'm probably going to leave some of you with more questions tonight than you came in with, and that's great. Ask me those questions, and if we need to, we'll come back and just spend a night answering questions or attempt to. But remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you sinners. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east of the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. It's God's way of saying, don't forget, rest and be assured. There is no other like me. I've called the end from the beginning because I'm outside of time and I see it all. What I've planned, I will accomplish. What I have purposed, it will happen. There's no shot. This, remember these realities of who God is as we look at his providence because it 
it only just adds to the fullness and assurance. So providence, on your, your uh, cheat sheet, there's providence defined, and I believe I wrote aspect or, or, or the activity of providence. There's two ways. We mentioned earlier, preservation and governance. By preservation, we mean God's upholding, his preserving, his providing, and caring for all his creation. Uh, The way Millard Erickson, a theologian, defines it is it's God's maintaining his creation in existence as he protects his creation against harm and destruction and provides for the needs of the elements and the the members of his creation. We, We see this throughout Scripture. Now, feel free to follow along or write down references, or if you invented the app that can hear my voice and automatically look it up on your phone, then consider patenting it and tithing all of the proceeds. Uh... I'm kidding. You should patent it, though, if you figure it out and biblically give as God calls you to, but uh, that's not a stump for anything. Okay, Hebrews 1, verse 3, talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And then uh, vice versa, there in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, uh, 15, he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. 16, all things created through him um, and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. All things endure. What we see from both of these passages that Jesus is active not just in creating all that has been created, but everything that you see created, everything you and I can't see created, Jesus is actively, by the very word of his power, holding it all together. Which would inversely imply this, that if, if Jesus could change and he decided to stop by the word of his power upholding all things, all things would instantly cease to be. The only reason things continue as they are, the only reason reality is upheld is because Jesus, God himself, is actively upholding all of creation by the word of his power. And by word of his power, you know, we, we do use things to define the words of his power, to see it. How is the universe upheld? Well, there's things like the laws of thermodynamics, gravity, electromagnetic force, all of these aspects, these laws, these realities, these mathematic certainties, these are simply our means of using human language to describe what what, what it says is the word of his power. He's upholding all things together, which goes beyond, I know this is later in my notes, but think about that when we hear a passage that, that, that where God is talking about how we are on his mind, understand how much even more we're on his mind. We're not on his mind as if it's a casual thought. He is actively upholding all things together, which means he delights to uphold things together. He, he delights in his creation. There is a, 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 though creation negatively relates to God in, in the aspect of our sinfulness, God delights to relate to creation. Uh, we see that Elsewhere in Scripture, Job 34, who gave God authority over the earth and who has laid on him the whole world? If he should determine to do so, he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath. If he took back his breath, if he should determine to do so, uh, all flesh would perish and man would return to dust. God upholds all things. He preserves as keeping he upholds all things, and in preserving all things, we see events are fully caused by God, 
while from our vantage point can also seem to be fully caused by creation. What do I mean? I mean, there's many things that we see that have a quote-unquote naturalistic explanation. There's a natural explanation for why it rains. There's a natural explanation for how we're able to forecast and, and, and know that things are coming. There's a natural explanation for El Nino and La Nina. There are natural explanations, but listen to Job 37. Though Job 37, 5 through 13, God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain be strong. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm, out of the north the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, he loads the thick clouds. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness. He causes it to happen." says elsewhere, Jesus speaking, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Here's the reality. When you and I look out and see our world operating according to certain laws of nature, understand, though there is a naturalistic explanation, that naturalistic explanation only exists because it is God behind the naturalistic explanation. And that's a great illustration of Romans 1 that God has caused his divine nature, his power and his attributes to be seen clearly through creation. The problem is not creation ceasing to testify to God. The problem is with sinful man who looked at creation and what does Romans 1 say? Instead made God in his image. We worship the creation rather than the creator, which is why we look so, so many will look at those naturalistic laws and go, well, see, there's no God, it's nature. Whereas you and I as a redeemed believer can look at nature and go, wow, how great is our God? In a way that also doesn't demean the fact that, yes, there are certain atmospheric conditions that do this and do that and drop this storm and bring hell and ruin roofs, and uh, that's all true. But we know that the Lord is the one who upholds and behind it. So we see his preservation as upholding. We see his preservation as providing in care. Listen to Psalm 104. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so they may bring forth food from the earth. Did you hear that? God literally provides. God is active in, in preserving and in guiding and caring for creation. And that he provides food for animals. God is such a good and caring God. He actively is orchestrating food for animals. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, Jesus speaks, I mentioned a second ago, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. In this way, everybody on the world experiences a certain measure of the grace of God. Because it rains here in Texas and it rains in North Korea. It rains in Washington, D.C., and it rained in Nazi Germany. God provides inside of creation. Uh, we see this uh, very clearly uh, brought out by Christ in, in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, uh, and Jesus is speaking about worry, the sin of worry in our lives, and, and listen, to, listen to the basis that he calls us out of that worry. 
Uh, Matthew 6, 25, Matthew 6, 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put in it. Is life not more than food, body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Uh, they do not sow, nor, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? Um, look, at, look at the lilies of the field grow. They, don't, they, they do not toil, nor do they spin, yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory uh, clothed, did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is sown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? All of these aspects of trying to drive home in specific God's, God's intimate and personal care for you and I as humans made in the image of God is all built off of seeing God's, God's care for creation. He feeds the sparrows. He closed the flowers in glory. And you go, what does that mean, close the flowers in glory? Um, uh, it, it means something like a few years ago when Bethany and I took a trip to, uh, to Colorado and we were in the mountains and we, were, we, we decided we were going to go on this hike to this, this uh, small lake way up. It was, it was, I believe it was over 10,000 feet, somewhere near 11, I think. And, and the way you come up and you don't see anything, you, you come up, you finally come up the slope, it flattens out. And there's just trees. And then you come out from the other side of those trees, and all of a sudden you are standing on the banks of just a picturesque, clear mirror image of the sky and the clouds with two glaciers on either side in front of you. It's breathtaking. That's the glory of the fields. Oh, and wonder if God so clothes creation like that, how much more is his mind and heart? on the beings before whom he created. Remember, God had all the animals, all the fields, all the sun, all the stars. He had everything. And he said, this is good. Then he said, let's make man in our image. And he said, this is very good. That's what Christ is driving at. This is God's providence, that he is active in his provision and, and his seeking. Uh, elsewhere, further in Matthew, Jesus says in chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. He says he knows the numbers of hair in your head. By the way, the average human head has around 100,000 hair follicles. And each follicle can grow about 20 individual hairs in a person's lifetime. You may not know this, but if you're a blonde, you have the most hair follicles. 146,000. If you got black hair, it's 110,000. If you got brown hair, it's 100,000. If you got red hair, it's 86,000. And if you're bald, well, it's pretty easy. Uh, <laughs> but understand the point. At any instant, the Lord's personal knowledge of you is so personal, is so intimate, and so caring, He knows the exact precise number of hairs on your head. There is an inseparability of God's children from his love and from his keeping. It's, that's, that's a focal point of Christ and Paul. Psalm 119, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. And I've, I've given the stat before. He says they would outnumber the grains of sand. Well, if, if there's basically if you take the amount of grains of sand that's estimated on the earth, uh, it's, it's seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains, which I think averages out to something like God thinking about you over 500 billion times per second. This basically means he's always thinking. You're always on his heart and mind. We see as, 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 as men and women made in the image of God, saved by grace through faith, when that reconciliation to Christ comes, where we are now able to be in right relationship, it's his provision, it's his providence where he says, John chapter 10, no one is able to snatch them from my hand. That's why once you're saved by grace through faith, you won't ever lose it. Not even if you have a week where you're just really crummy. 
You won't lose it because it's not you who holds Christ. It's Christ who holds you. Which is why when you get to Romans chapter 8, and ironically in a chapter that mentions all creation groaning, waiting for the moment where Christ will return and restore all things, restore the relationship of creation to her creator, in that same chapter is where, is where Paul will write, inspired by the Spirit, that we are more than conquerors, and that nothing in all creation can ever bring an instance of separation from us and the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We see all sorts of stories in the Old Testament where God provides. God provides for creation. God provides for his people. God provides through natural means. God provides through supernatural means. Now listen, this provision, let's be clear. While we see God's providence and this provision and this caring clearly throughout the pages of Scripture, we also need to understand clearly that God never promises that you and I, as special objects of his care and provision, won't face hardship. He never promises that. That promise is not, is not there to you and I. In fact, uh, one, uh, one theologian said it this way, and I think it's, it's, it's well worded. One sa- uh, salient dimension of God's preservation is that the believer is not spared from danger or trial, but is preserved within danger and trial. There is no promise that persecution and suffering will not come, but rather that persecution and suffering will not prevail over the believer. Even more so when you realize that God, who is providence over all creation and his protection, upholding, and caring, when God took on flesh, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, he was not spared suffering. He experienced hunger. He experienced sorrow. He experienced pain. He experienced rejection. He experienced temptation. So do you want to be clear here that God does, and by and large, when you look around our lives, even in the midst of what for most of us would be trials, we still find God's provision. There's air to breathe. Most of us in this room have have never truly lived in abject poverty like the majority of the world. Not saying that no one ever has, but even middle class in America feeling the burn of inflation is still richer than 99% of the rest of the world. God's provision is there in many ways, even in the midst of suffering, that we may not be there. But I do want to be clear, God does care, God does provide, God does uphold. That's all part of his providence, but let's also not take it to a dangerous overextension that said, well, God, since God always provides, it means anytime I have anything I deem a need, God will provide what I want for it. That's also not promised in Scripture. So what are implications of the fact that God in his providence, he upholds, he cares, he, he protects Which, by the way, part of that is actually the reason that you and I as believers ought to have with all creation, whether that's uh, that's with economic aspects of creation and our finances or whether that's with just physical creation. We ought to have an attitude of stewardship and care. It's why in in terms of if one extreme is Greenspeace, save the trees and the whales, and the other stream is industry, 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 burn it all down. Uh, We as a believer have to reject both of those extremes. We don't worship the creation, nor do we worship what we can do with the creation. Instead, God calls us to protect and preserve the creation because we're made in his image. And what does it mean to be made in his image? We reflect him and and we're reflecting one who in his providence cares and preserves and upholds 
his creation for his glory. And this is what it means. It means we have to reject deistic ideas. Deistic ideas, the idea that God just created all the universe. He got everything fine-tuned. He plugged in all the formulas on his heavenly computer. And when it was all ready, he hit enter and boom, let it play out all in front of him. And he sits back removed from it. Now, deism, true deism, is not probably something that is as prevalent in our day and age today as it was in the day and age of our founding fathers. It was a very popular religious notion in that time. But many of us, in the way that we think about God, will operate very deistically, feeling that God is very far off and removed. That as the world plunges into all sorts of chaos, both in terms of what rages between people, but also just think of some of the natural disasters in recent history, that God is somehow far off and not attuned. No, that is a very deistic idea of God that is completely and totally a contradiction of the God we see in Scripture, who is intimately involved in all aspects of his creation, upholding and reserving. It means we also reject the repairman idea is what some has called it, that God created the universe and he hasn't just sat back and left it alone, but the only time he enters into the universe is when it's broken and problem. We got to go fix that. Let's understand what that does inherently. That means God's relationship with the universe is inherently negative. God only interacts with the universe because it's messed up and he needs to fix the antenna. No, God's, our relationship as people broken by sin is inherently negative to God. But God's relationship to his creation is inherently positive because it flows out of his goodness like we've looked at the last two weeks. And if he is constantly engaged, so we reject that. It also means this. It means that if God is actively by the word of his power upholding all of creation, then all of creation in reality is truly real. And I'm somewhat telling you that as a teaser for where we'll go when we, when we have to dive into the philosophy category, but also to just say it's real, it's tangible, it's able to be looked at and experienced and touched and tasted and, and experimented on. This is the whole basis for the scientific revolution several hundred years ago was, was men seeing this aspect of theology and going, if God is a, is a logical, orderly God who, who has created creation, then when I study the law of thermodynamics, I'm not just studying the law of thermodynamics. I'm studying how God upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's real. It's tangible. It's what gives us the ability for science. It's what gives us confidence that things in the universe work the way they're supposed to. You want to know why? If all you do is eat sugar and grease, you're going to have bad cholesterol? Because that's the way it works. It's like this. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've shared before, I love the, the lunar landings. But realize the lunar landings, I mean, it's, it's, it's an abject marvel and miracle. Because when you really study the lunar landings, it's not, um, it's not Star Wars. You don't hop in your X-wing, punch the button, and drive by sight. All of the lunar landings are math. Math and star charts. I mean, the whole way they got Apollo 13 back, I mean, you realize the, the craziness of that? They're flying in a ship that's broken that they can't even see what's broken. They've got a couple windows about this big. 
They can't fire anything. They can see some stars. It's all by the math of gravity and slingshot. I mean, all of that. And you talk about how precise it is because if they're off by a sliver, they plunge into the ocean and die on impact or they skip off the atmosphere forever in space and eternity. But they hit that mark just right because God has created a universe where things work the way they're supposed to work according to the principles that he created and established and upholds every moment of every day by the word of his power. That's incredible. This is God's preservation. God's governance. Now, this is typically what most of us are going to think of and, and, and have wrestles with in questions with God's providence. By God's government, governance, we mean God is completely in charge and what he plans will happen, period. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. We see this in nature. Psalm 135, 5 through 6, For I know the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and the seas and all the depths. We, we see in 1 Kings 17 and 18 and Repeated in James 5, when Elijah prays and asks God to keep it from raining, it doesn't rain. Why is it not raining? Why are the laws of nature not working? Because God is the one who has complete and total governance over nature. We see in Luke and Mark and John, we see Jesus rebuking storms. And, and when he says, peace be still, instantly the storm's gone. We see Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two fish and multiplying it to feed 5,000 is how many men were there. Likely it's more like 20 to 40,000 people with 12 baskets left over. We see that in God's, in God's uh, governance, he has complete and total authority over all nature. We see it not just over all nature, we see with animals. Daniel chapter 6, thrown in the lion's den, and it says, God shut the mouths of the lions. 1 Kings 17, Elijah's on the run, hiding out in the brook Kidron, no access to food. God sends the ravens to bring him food. God is sovereign over wild animals. He, he opens the mouths of donkeys to talk, or I should say donkey to talk, singular. There's only one instance. And the irony with things of creation, animals, weather, nature, is that when God says do it, it always does it instantly. God also does it through we see his governance, his control through seemingly random or chance events. There's plenty of these in Scripture, but I want you to see my favorite, uh, 1, Kings 20, 1 Kings 22. It's one of my favorite ironic verses in all of Scripture. And we see an incredible interplay of God's sovereignty. He knows what's going to happen. He declares what's going to happen. And in his control, he makes sure it happens. But at the same time, seemingly... Random. Now, in chap back in 1 Kings 21, God, through Elijah, tells Ahab that Ahab is going to die. You're going to be judged. You're going to die. And so in 1 Kings 22, they're out. And so Ahab, knowing this, goes into this battle. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to disguise myself. Instead of looking like the king sitting on the horse, easy target, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide myself. We're going to make it even harder to die today. Verse 34. Now a certain man, so some specific individual, drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor 
So he said, turn around, take me out of the fight for I'm severely wounded. And later on, he, he dies from blood loss. So God says, you're going to die. God's in complete control. This death is going to be a, a means of God's judgment on Ahab. Yet here in the same book, not in any way in contradiction, it says there's a specific man. So I just get this picture. He whips out an arrow, battle raging around, and he whips out an arrow and just shoots it off. He's not aiming at anything. And that arrow just happens to find its way into a chink in the joint of the armor to hit some part of Ahab's body where he'd bleed out. God's governance is seen even inside of random or, quote, chance events from our perspective. We see that God's governance plays out in the affairs of nations in history. We, we've seen, uh, we looked at this passage several weeks ago, Acts 17, verse 17. We mentioned it earlier tonight. The Lord doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. Later on in that same passage, it says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. We see in Daniel chapter 4, when, when Daniel's uh, interpreting dreams, we see that prophesies in Daniel 2 and Daniel 4, he prophesies about the next, uh, next four different empires. Isaiah chapter 10, same thing. And, and you see this play out today. God is still sovereign over the affairs of nations. Now, uh, scripture seems pretty clear that there's a purpose for the geopolitical nation of Israel in the end times. And prior to 1948, for, for two, almost 2,000 years, no geopolitical Israel existed. And then out of the horror of World War II, product of sinful humanity, all of a sudden the most unexpected and unlikely thing happens. There is now a geopolitical nation of Israel. We see other things. Now, I want to be careful with this statement in world affairs. I'm not making any statement, politically, policy, anything that has to do with any kind of climate change. Clear. If you come up and go, I can't believe, I didn't say anything one way or the other. What I am saying is God's word says that when we get closer to the end, that creation will start to rage even more than ever before. Read some of the stuff about the end times. It's clear there is some level of climate upheaval. Which means to a certain level, if God's really in control of things, you see some of this. Now, don't, again, don't, I'm just using an example. Please don't go further there than, than, please don't. We see that God's not just in his governance over the affairs of nations and history. Uh, God is uh, in his governance over the plan of redemption. Uh, Galatians 4.4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. Jesus didn't come at random. God knows the whole span of human history, and in the whole span of human history, he chose the precise moment that in his perfect knowledge would be the perfect moment to send the Messiah, and in the fullness of time, that perfect moment, he sends the Messiah. His redemptive plan is perfect in its governance of our lives. If God is not completely sovereign and, and in control, then, then there is no comfort from a statement because you can't make the statement, Romans eight twenty eight that God will cause all things to work together for the good of God and those who are called and love Christ Jesus. I mean, understand that. That statement has no power in our lives if God is not sovereign and because if God is not really in control, then God can't take all things and work them together for good in our lives. That's only possible if God is a God who has total governance over creation, over redemption, over 
salvation, uh, salvation in the sense of salvation working out in our lives. We see that God's governance in scripture extends to, to, to aspects of our lives. Well, probably many, especially with what's going on with the Supreme Court and abortion, probably many have seen this passage. Jeremiah 1, verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And he goes on to describe exactly what's there. We see Paul in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, in describing what ultimately is the governance of God on his life personally, makes this statement, but even when God who set me apart from my mother's womb, Romans, or, or Psalm 139, in your book were written the days from, here's the reality, scriptures affirms that God, God and his governance has specific plans for your life and my life. There's specific plans. He didn't just create generically and go, oh, well, you know, go, go make something of yourself. There's specific plans and purposes. We see that with spiritual gifts. First Corinthians talks about God as sovereign and who, who he gives what gifts to. We see this in, in circumstances we face in life. But as for me, O Lord, I trust in you. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Psalms 31. We see this play out over the book of Esther. Of course, the famous statement from Mordecai, do not imagine that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than the Jews, for if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. And who knows whether or not you have attained royalty for such a time as this. We see God's providence, his governance, his sovereignty play out through man's actions. Saul was delivered into David's hands, 1 Samuel 24, by God. Yet David does not kill Saul because of God's command. We see Ezra chapter 7 that God, even though the king of Persia didn't know God, didn't honor God, it was God who put his heart and filled his mind with the idea to send the people of, uh, of, uh, of Judah and Benjamin back to the promised land. We see Exodus 12, the Egyptians freely gave their wealth to the Israelites even though God beforehand, we're talking to Moses in Exodus 3, said that's exactly what they would do. So we see God's purposes play out through man's actions. And that is a key distinction here as we're coming up in, 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 a, in a second. There is a harmony in scripture between God's providence, his sovereignty, and the kind of free will that he's given Mankind made in his image to interact. We see it's not just through man's actions as if God's providence only plays out through those who walk rightly with him. That's true, but he even takes sinner and sinful actions. This is Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers, they're certainly not motivated by the glory of God when they, when they throw him in a pit and decide to sell him off into slavery. They don't value the things of God. They don't value uh, the character of God. They don't value the image of God in Joseph. They are not walking with God in any way, and it's not God inspiring them to put him into slavery. If it was, then God would be the one tempting them to sin, and we know from James 1, God can't tempt anyone to sin. Yet look at, from Joseph's perspective... In Genesis chapter 45, Joseph tells his brothers, verse 4, Genesis 45, verse 4, they came closer. I'm your, I'm your brother Joseph, you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And of course, there's a famous statement in, in chapter 50, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. One of the, one of the greatest statements of this is, is in Acts chapter 2 because it impacts our very Lord. 
Peter's preaching. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man that was attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Listen to how he says this. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, there's God's providence and sovereignty, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It doesn't say God in his providence, you had no, no will, no interaction. No, he says, no, you as sinful men acted out of sin and you wrongfully nailed Christ to the cross. You did it. And through you doing it, God also carried out the plan of salvation, the lamb slain before the, 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 the creation of the world, the foundations of the world. And this is why the basis of when we read a passage like Philippians chapter 2 and you get into to verses 10 and 11, like we've looked at multiple times in the last six months because everyone should have the whole book memorized by now. Uh, I had a Sunday school teacher junior year. He, if you memorize the book of Philippians, he'd pay you $100. Uh, no one did it our year, so what does that say about us? Um, but what does it say? So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, all of those under heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as the Lord to the glory of God the Father. If God is not providential in his governance, if God is not sovereign, then that statement can't bring any comfort. But because God is sovereign and he works his sovereignty through people, it's why he can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's coming a moment where it doesn't matter lost or saved, we're all going to see Jesus exalted and everybody's going to be bowing down on their knee and confessing Jesus is in fact the one true Lord and King. The lost to their terror, shame, and horror, us to joy evermore. So we see all of this in scripture that God's governance is played out through man's actions, through righteous men, through, through wicked men, through all people. And, and, and ultimately this does lead us to some challenges. Now I'm not going to unfortunately go into everything that you see on, on there, but I want to make this point. When you look at the history of the church, because I know ultimately this will be where some go, well, how does this impact Calvinism, Arminianism, or this, that, and the other? And tonight's not the night to go through that. Primarily because those are issues that have to do with the nature of how does God's sovereignty work in salvation. We're talking much broader than that tonight. We're just talking God's providence, period, over all things. But partially this, so I tell you, the early church was born into a philosophical worldview where most people in the first century believed in what we would call hardcore fatalism. Doesn't matter what you do, it's already been determined. And that's a hopeless way to live. Yet what you see the early church, the early church sees these same things we do in scripture. And the early church says, God is providence. God knows all things. He exists outside of time. He sees all things. He knows all things. And this is what then gives us hope to actually trust him and follow him because he knows all things. And, and, and it does matter what choices we make in conjunction with him. And it's not until some later developments where you see those things. So you kind of ignore in your paper where I put put some other notes under historical and theological. We're not going to go there for the sake of tonight because of other things that are important. So here's the question in God's providence. Is it just general? Are we just talking God generally has a plan? So God has this general plan for a redemption. God has this general plan to come back. God has this general plan. But inside of this general plan, you and I and other human beings just get to run, run freely around and do whatever we want. Or does God have a specific plan? Does God have specific plans in our lives? Does God make it more, make it more generic? If it's just general then God has a plan to send Jesus to save everybody, but, you know, whoever responds, God will take. Or is it specific? God actually had a plan in his heart to seek and 
try to woo you to salvation. And God has a, a plan that he desires to live and work throughout your life. And the true reality is we see both in scripture. We see both. God's providence is both general and wide. It's also specific. God has a specific plan for creation. He created creation to, for, for glory. He, he's worked out his plan of redemption to bring it black to glory. We see that God has a specific plan in our lives. He had a plan for Jeremiah, a plan for Paul. He had a plan for Esther. He had a plan for Ruth. Ruth, you know, Ruth's not really a big player when you think about what she did, yet Ruth is the grandmother of David and in the lineage of Jesus and is a foreigner that God, that willingly embraces God and God willingly grafts in and a preview of God's greater plan. We see that God works generally at times. There's times in his providence as far as how it impacts our life. There's times where in our lives, his providence plays out where he gives us an opportunity to make a choice. And he genuinely expects us to make a choice, trusting him for good reasons. i give you a simple example. God gives you real clear criteria about who you should or shouldn't date. Now that doesn't apply to a lot of people in the room, but just go with me here for a second because it's an easy example. God tells you and I as believers, we shouldn't be dating any non-believers. But then unless God specifically says you can't ask that person on a date, there's freedom to take someone on a date. But there's not freedom to promise that person you're going to marry him if God hadn't, right? Like there's, we see God's work generally. There's, there's, there's aspects there where, where God calls you and I to make a choice and God will honor those ways. But there's also times that his work in our lives and our experience is extremely specific. Sometimes it's very specific what decision we have to make. Sometimes it becomes specific as other doors shut. Sometimes we only see the clarity in hindsight, God may, God may uh, give us a freedom to, to take, take people, plenty, I mean, plenty, I didn't take a jillion people on dates, but God gave me freedom to take people on dates. But I didn't, only gave me freedom to marry one of them. And I'm not trying by that to say, is there the one or ones or, no, we're not going there tonight. Uh, <laughs> I know that's someone's question and I'm happy to come back there. We just don't have time to, if I try to answer that tonight, I'm going to mess all of us up. Uh, at the same time, think of, in my life, I think of my calling. My, the calling in my life into vocational ministry, I have very little wiggle room. I can't just decide one day, you know what? This ministry thing's getting kind of old. I think I need to pray about looking at some other options. There's no other options for me. God called me to be a pastor. That's it. My buddy who's a firefighter. Right now, he feels like God's calling me a firefighter, but he also has freedom to go, Lord, is it, would you have me move into a different vocation? Would you have me there's different levels of specificities in our life. God does work specifically in our lives. Our job is not to figure out every little detail of our plan. Our job is to know him. Our job is to trust him. Our job is to love him. Our job is to obey his word. And think about, because ultimately the final analysis of our lives in Christ, the final analysis of our lives, we're judged based on faithfulness to what we do or what we don't do. I know we're right at, we got three minutes till seven. I'll stop at seven, I promise. Think about the parable of the talents, right? King, the owner gives one person ten tal five talents, one, two, one, one. The one with five puts it at work, it grows into 10. The one with two puts it at work, grows into four. The one with one shoves it in the dirt. And when the, when the king comes back, he doesn't go, well, you know what, guys? It was already predetermined that you were going to work and you were going to get 10 and you were going to get four. And it was determined you were going to be a bum and only put one. And so everyone's off. That's not, that's not the conversation that ensues. 
What ensues is you were faithful, therefore there is reward. You were faithful, therefore there is reward. You were lazy and unfaithful because you had a horrible view of who I am. And therefore there's not reward. So there is this interchange. Here's the way, I think the best way to process it. Um, The best, and we'll, we'll pick up where I'm stopping tonight. We'll pick up next week with it. Um, but, but I think it's the best way to process it. I'm, uh, this is what, what A.W. Tozer says. I think he does a good job expressing, expressing it. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby refute the sovereign will of God, but he fulfills it inasmuch as God's will decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. Man's will is free because God is sovereign. And here's a fascinating thing he says, a God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom on people because he would be afraid to do so. Because if God's not sovereign to give you and I a kind of free will that involves meaningful, consequential, moral choice, he wouldn't do it because he couldn't ultimately know if his plans would stand. But if he's sovereign, there's no fear to do it. To be made in the image of God, we don't have unlimited free will, but we do have a real kind of free will. To say yes, to say no, to obey, to not. And if you go, oh my goodness, Wes, are you a Calvinist or a Menace? I'm neither. I just, here's the reality in scripture. God is providence. He's sovereign. Period. He's given you and I a kind of free will that works in harmony with the sovereignty and God and his word doesn't seem too concerned about it contradicting because he doesn't flesh it out to the scientific atomic level. And so what does that mean for you and I as we realize it? In fact, Tozer was the one who gave the example, uh, God's sovereignty is like a boat. There's a boat. We're all on the boat. The captain of the boat's behind the wheel. He said the boat's going to go to this port. You and I can do whatever we want on the boat. We can obey the captain. We can fall in line. We can disobey the captain. But it doesn't change the fact that he's the one driving the boat and the boat's going where he says it's going to go. So ultimately, what does this mean for you and I? And this is where we'll wrap it tonight is it does mean this, and think about this in reality of, of where we're at as you look at the world today. This does in fact mean God really is in control. God really is in control. It does not mean that the world is honoring his control. It does not mean that he is pleased in everything going on in our world. It does not mean that there are not real physical threats to you and I as people. It does not mean that we're going to somehow be uh, exempted from experiencing those things because Jesus wasn't exempted from experiencing those things. And it's enough for us to walk in the shoes of our master, not to be different than him. But it does really mean God is on his throne and he really is in control. It does really mean because he's in control, you and I's choices to honor him or dishonor him really do matter. And it does mean that you and I can make the choice to stand where he stands and to honor him, not frightenedly, but confidently because he really is the one in control and he will in his providential care provide what we need in his grace, not just to live as humans, but to stand as his sons and daughters to the glory and renown of his name 
that many other men, women, boys, and girls in this world who right now are the ones out of alignment with the Lord, raging against his sovereignty, falling in line with the enemy, that they would see and hear the light of his gospel, that they might be saved. And we'll pause there because that's a great note to pause on. And we'll come back next week, finish this up and put it all together with what it means for our worldview and how it impacts where we go. As always, you got questions, feel free to ask. And if there's a lot, a lot of questions on this, I'm happy we'll go there. Just this is always a hard deal. It's like opening a can of worms. And I know it's opening a can of worms, but it's also a really good can of worms. It's not really a can of worms. It's It's a joy because our God is in control. And how terrifying would it be if he's not? So let's pray. Father, you are in control, and God, this is one. There, I just, you know my prayer, Lord. I want everyone in here, everyone listening, anybody who hears this audio, whatever, I just want us all to see you clearly. I'm not in any way to present you in a way that's false to your word. God, the answer, my job, I can't answer every question. And in fact, your word doesn't give us the answer to every question that we can come up with that we are going to experience. But your word does say clearly who you are and how you are. And we have to be clear that we understand that because if we don't understand who you are and how you are exactly how, in the way you say, it is too easy to hear deceptive little lies of the enemy that question and mock your character and without realizing it, take a false view of you that forever begins to mess up the rest of our worldview. So, Lord, this is a crazy time in our world. It is a crazy time in our country. It it seems that (laughs) there's going to be even more craziness to come than what we've seen the last several years. And, God, if we don't really believe you're in control, we are going to fall and crumble doesn't mean knowing you're in control makes it easy, but Lord, that's the starting point. for us. It's where we've got to start. So Lord, may we rest on the fact that it is you behind the helm of the ship and no one else. It is you on your throne. And it doesn't matter how many riots come out. It doesn't matter how many politicians and media anchors scream at each other. It doesn't matter what laws drop or don't drop. It doesn't matter any of it. None of it shakes your throne. And so may we shine brilliantly as ambassadors of you, as citizens of America, as um, residents on the earth. May we shine first and foremost as ambassadors and citizens of heaven, longing for the day. God, when we won't rest in faith knowing your throne isn't shaken, but we will look at you and commune with you as you sit on your throne in front of us. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.